Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. We Charity started to wind down in Canada, but that didn't mean that politicians and the media were done with trying to tear down its reputation. Politicians like Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev were again taking every opportunity to score political points, and they cared little about the collateral damage. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the true story of how conservative MPs called on their army of supporters to harass owners of a speaker's bureau, and how Angus bullied a man suffering from a brain aneurysm. All for what? Manufactured Outrage On September 23, 2020, Governor General Julie Payette, soon to be forced out of office in a scandal of her own, delivered the throne speech that opened the second session of the 43rd Parliament of Canada. With a masked Justin Trudeau sitting by her side, Payette laid out the liberal government's plan for meeting the challenge of the most serious public health crisis Canada has ever faced. There was ambitious talk of supporting people and businesses for as long as was necessary, strengthening the middle class, creating jobs, and fighting discrimination of every kind. Pyatt touted the government's existing and proposed COVID-related measures including the Safe Return to Class Fund, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the Action Plan for Women in the Economy, and the Black Entrepreneurship Program. But in all that, there was no mention of the CSSG and the words volunteerism, nonprofit, and charity were never uttered. It was the start of fall 2020, and a lot of people seem ready to put the tumultuous events of the summer behind them. And who could blame them? The economy was still in shambles. A vaccine was still just a dream. And the country, as it turned out, was at the start of its worst COVID wave to date. Canadians could hardly be faulted for thinking there were bigger issues to address than the CSSG and We Charity. But evidently, someone forgot to tell that to the politicians. As everyone else was trying to look ahead, the opposition-dominated ETHI committee was continuing to dredge up the past. A matter of public record. By September, the ETHI committee had already been looking into the CSSG for months. But wait. You may be thinking, wasn't that the FINA committee? In truth, it's hard even for those of us immersed in these events to keep straight the activities of two sometimes overlapping committees populated by many of the same politicians and tasked with examining the same basic issues. That was by design. The opposition parties wanted to keep the CSSG story alive and put as much of a dent as possible in Justin Trudeau's poll numbers 
especially with popular new COVID spending on the table. To that end, they sought new angles to argue that there was more to be uncovered about the scandal and thereby manufactured fresh controversy. And the pundits and journalists who had been relying on a steady stream of we-related stories to generate clicks and boost revenues were only too happy to partner in the effort. It mattered not that by this point that there really was no mystery left around the CSSG. The facts were a matter of public record, and the FINA committee had already heard from 31 witnesses. To certain members of the ETHI committee, though it was as if none of that had ever happened, and through the rest of 2020 and into the spring of 2021, they decided to revisit many of the same questions that had already been put to rest. And here the liberals did themselves no favors. In proroguing parliament, the prime minister had bolstered the narrative that the government was continuing to hide something. When thousands of pages of documents were released to the public on August 18th, Pierre Polyev convened a press conference the next day so he could hold up selectively chosen pages of heavily redacted text. This page blacked out, he complained to the press as he dramatically tossed each document aside. This page blacked out. This page blacked out. Why don't we ask what's in those pages at a parliamentary committee? Well, I'll tell you why. Justin Trudeau shut down those parliamentary committees. The redactions in question were not made by We Charity. In a letter to the committee, Ian Shugart, then clerk of the Privy Council, said the redactions were made either because of cabinet confidentiality or because the content was unrelated to the CSSG. Prorogation even began to generate media attention beyond the country's borders. Trudeau's suspensions of Parliament amid ethics controversy fuels cries of cover-up, read a headline in the Washington Post. The article quoted then-conservative leader Andrew Scheer as saying, Justin Trudeau is walking out on Canadians in the middle of a major health and economic crisis in a disgusting attempt to make Canadians forget about his corruption. The BBC reported that Trudeau had narrowly survived a confidence vote that would have toppled his government, then noted that his controversial decision to suspend Parliament had cut short several parliamentary committees looking into the We Charity scandal. Andy Steelman, director of the U.S.-based Steelman Family Foundation, a strong supporter of the charity, grew increasingly concerned with these and other reports. I was confused reading all the negative press about we and its founders, Steelman said in an interview. He felt a responsibility to make an informed decision about whether to continue his foundation's financial support. For my sake, and the sake of our family foundation, 
I felt we needed to cut through the politics and get to the truth. Stillman decided to fund two independent reviews by nonpartisan experts. The first was by Dr. Al Rosen, the forensic auditor who looked at the charity's finances and was discussed in some detail in Chapter 6. The second was a close examination of the CSSG and how it was awarded. For this report, Stillman tapped Matthew Torrigian, the former Deputy Solicitor General of Ontario and currently a distinguished fellow in the Global Justice Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Torrigian was eminently qualified, and importantly, he had no previous connection to or involvement in WE that could make him vulnerable to accusations of bias. When I spoke to him for this book, he told me he had laid down strict conditions to keep his work independent, telling Steelman and the charity, I'll write what I write. You can do what you want with the report. But if you don't like it, I'm not changing it because it stings. It'll be what I report on it. Tarigian and his team examined more than 5,000 pages of documents, emails, and other relevant material released by the federal government to the FINA committee and hundreds more pages of documents given to the committee by We Charity. His findings based on this extensive paper trail reconfirmed the testimony of key civil servants, including Rachel Wernick and Ian Shugart and elected officials like Bardish Chagger and, yes, Justin Trudeau. Summarizing his conclusions in an op-ed in the Toronto Star, Torrigian wrote, The case is clear. We Charity was not looking for a lifeline. It didn't get special treatment. It was properly approached by the bureaucracy, and neither the charity nor its co-founders stood to profit from the CSSG. But a story like that doesn't sell papers or threaten to bring down a government. Even though the facts on the ground were clear, they were largely ignored by opposition politicians and the media. In the public square, We Charity and the Kilbergers continued to be looked upon and treated as if they themselves were the architects of the entire government process. They had lost countless donors and corporate sponsors, spent hours testifying before the FINA committee, suffered death threats, been dragged through the mud in the press, and endured irreparable reputational harm. And of course, We Charity Canada, the product of 25 years of toil, was no more. But here is the bitterest irony of it all. What if We Charity had actually done everything it had been accused of doing in relation to the CSSG? Let's say, for example, that the Kilbergers had, in fact, enjoyed a cozy relationship with Trudeau, and Morneau pulled every string 
leveraged every friendship, hired Margaret Trudeau, and worked with Sophie Gregoire Trudeau as a means of currying favor with the liberal government and invented the whole idea of the CSSG to get themselves a bailout. So what? The organization still would have done nothing wrong had Trudeau and Morneau recused themselves and had the bureaucrats decided to solicit multiple bids for the program. But these were the two things that We Charity had absolutely no control over and no opportunity to influence. Nobody ever asked for the organization's views on how the CSSG should be sourced or whether cabinet ministers should recuse themselves. And the charity never held itself out as having an expertise on these topics. The bottom line is that even if we and the Kilbergers had done the worst things they were accused of doing as a means to secure the CSSG, it wouldn't have mattered if government actors had properly managed their own potential conflicts of interest. None of this, of course, was of any relevance to the ETHI committee members who did not want the music to stop. They decided to keep throwing mud and see what would stick with little regard for anyone who might get hurt in the process. Political Pawns When Parliament got back to business on September 23rd, all parliamentary committees also resumed their work. It took a while for the ETHI to get back up to speed, though. In fact, the wills of government, being what they are, the members debated process for months and didn't get around to calling their first witness until November 27th. It was December before things really got rolling. On December 7th, the committee heard from Martin Perlmutter, the president and co-founder of Speaker Spotlight, a company that books speakers for conferences, meetings, and events. Speaker Spotlight represents such well-known Canadians as astronaut Chris Hatfield, author Neil Pasricha, Olympian and mental health advocate Claire Hughes, and Margaret and Alexander Trudeau. The Trudeaus, of course, were the reason the committee was interested in the agency. What's less clear is why Pearl Mutter himself needed to appear. As he noted in his opening statement, he had no knowledge pertaining to the operations of We Charity, the Liberal Government, or the Canada Student Service Grant Program. Once again, here was a witness with nothing to offer, and the session should have ended right there. In fact, Pearl Mutter, his wife and co-founder, and various employees of Speaker Spotlight had been dealing with the committee in the background since before Parliament was prorogued. On July 24th, the company had received a letter from the committee clerk asking for records pertaining to all Trudeau family speaking engagements for the past 13 years. The Pearl Mutters were given just three days to comply, an impossible deadline complicated by the fact that all the agency's employees were working from home. 
Consequently, Perlmutter told the committee, we asked for an extension to address the order, which was granted to us. But before the revised deadline arrived, Parliament was suspended, and the clerk contacted them again to explain that the committee could not receive the documents until it had resumed its work. Seemed straightforward enough, which is why Perlmutter was surprised when just a week later he got a letter from conservative MP Michael Barrett urging Speaker Spotlight to do the right thing and immediately release the documents to the public. Barrett presumably understood that the committee on which he served, the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics, was not able to receive the documents and that Perlmutter would be violating the privacy rights of his clients if he unilaterally released the information Barrett was demanding. In other words, Barrett's version of doing the right thing involved breaking the law. He apparently didn't care. This was all performative. The first shot in what rapidly turned into an all-out public relations war. Barrett wasn't interested in the minutiae of people's contracts. He wanted Canadians to think that the Perlmutters were stonewalling at the behest of the Liberals. Before his letter had even hit Martin Perlmutter's inbox, it was already in the hands of a reporter for the Canadian press, who then contacted the agency looking for comment. At the same time, Barrett released the letter on social media, hoping to stoke outrage among his followers. His fellow conservative MP, Candace Bergen, also got in on the act, posting the business phone number for Speaker Spotlight on her own social media channels and encouraging people to harass the Perlmutters and their staff. A series of events that happened after that put us in a really difficult situation. Perlmutter explained to the committee members something I've never experienced before. For the first time in my 25-year career, I was in a situation where I didn't feel that I could properly protect employees from what was going on. We had to get the police involved. It was a really nasty situation. Threats were received. Staff members were concerned for their personal safety. Someone discovered Farah Perlmutter's private cell phone number, and her husband said posted it on some Facebook group with a photo of her calling her disgusting and derogatory things. Her phone started ringing day and night with all kinds of people calling. She was terrified and didn't want to leave the house. All pleas to the conservatives to call off their attacks fell on deaf ears. The Kafkaesque situation continued into November when the committee clerk got back in touch and asked for records relating to speeches made by Justin Trudeau and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau going back to 2008. 
The Pearl Motors advised the clerk that consistent with Canadian privacy regulations, they held on to paper records for seven years. The company had some electronic records and would produce them, but anything on paper had been discarded before the committee requested the materials. Once again, Barrett saw a chance to make something out of nothing and set off a firestorm by falsely accusing the Perlmutters of destroying evidence. The Globe and Mail, for its part, amplified this manufactured controversy with the headline, Speaker's Agency purged some records of Trudeau family events related to We Charity controversy. When I spoke to Martin Perlmutter in mid-2021, it was clear that the stress of those moments had stayed with him. He knew nothing about the CSSG and had no affiliation with We Charity or any political party, yet he felt like he was caught in the middle of a hurricane. The scary part was you wake up every morning and the first thing you do is look at trashness on social media, accusing us of all kinds of crazy things, he told me. You wonder what crazy stuff is going to be written today. He lamented that the consequences of this fiasco would likely haunt his agency for years to come. When you're using private citizens or small business to accomplish what you see as a political game, that to me should never happen. When Perlmutter told this story to the committee, various members offered their apologies for what he, his wife, and the employees had been through. Liberal MP Brenda Shanahan likened it to McCarthyism, where many innocent people were dragged in front of committees and aspersions were made. Even Charlie Angus had some heartfelt words telling him, I don't think that should have happened. I appreciate the fact that you've come here and given us clear answers. That's what we've asked of you and you've delivered. But there were no words of contrition from Michael Barrett or any of the other conservatives on the video conference that day. In contributing to the narrative that the liberals were using their supposed friends to obstruct the committee's investigation, the Pearl Mothers and Speaker Spotlight had served their purpose and the opposition members didn't appear to care about the damage done in pursuing that goal. Nor for that matter, did the liberals. They had managed to successfully shift the public's attention from the prime minister's family members and his own alleged ethical lapses. In some ways, though, Martin Perlmutter got the last word when he reminded all members that as people in a public role, their words and actions have particular consequences. I believe in this process. I believe in this committee, he said. That's why we're here. That's why we've cooperated through the whole process. That's why it's doubly disturbing, because if the work was done here at the committee, I would have no issue with answering questions and providing the information 
or documentation that was requested, but it was taken outside of the committee and thrown into the public sphere, and we were just held out to dry. You might think people would have been shamed into better behavior by this whole embarrassing episode, but of course, that wasn't the case. In fact, the same day that Martin Perlmutter appeared, the committee had also asked to hear from Victor Lee, We Charity CFO. This set off another series of events that demeaned everyone concerned. Victor grew up in China and studied economics at one of the country's most prestigious universities before immigrating to Canada in 1999. Once he'd qualified as a chartered professional accountant, he wanted to give back to the country that had welcomed him. He found his perfect fit at WE, where he became CFO of both WE Charity and Me to WE. He'd been with the organization for more than 20 years. Unfortunately, Victor went on medical leave early in 2020 when he was diagnosed with a cerebral aneurysm, a bulging artery in the brain that if it ruptured could cause paralysis or death. When he was called to testify, his legal counsel, Megan Savard, wrote to the committee to make it clear that the stress of live testimony would put his health at risk. Savard offered two options. Victor could provide written responses to questions, or the committee could reschedule his appearance when his condition was stable. This was the first in a series of escalating exchanges between the committee and Savard as hostile MPs ignored her repeated warnings about Victor's health and tried to frame him as a shady character, evading their questions. Seven months in, we have had obstruction, refusals, and denials to participate, complained Charlie Angus in one committee meeting. He was one of the most vicious in his attacks on Victor, downplaying his condition as feeling sick and accusing the whole organization of having a sense of entitlement. Not surprisingly, pundits like Charity Intelligence's Kate Bayon jumped on the bandwagon tweeting, We CFO declines invitation to answer ethics committee questions. This is outrageous unaccountability and shames Canada's charity sector. Enough. Parliament should revoke all charities that Victor Lee oversees. Mark and Craig couldn't believe it. Mark remembers thinking that the demands for Victor to testify could literally kill him. The committee members knew that, he told me, and they simply didn't care. Craig had a similar reaction. There was no thought to him as a person, to his wife or his daughter, he said. Watching the committee meetings and seeing the media and social media attack his reputation, the lack of human decency and compassion made me furious. Even when the committee finally agreed to make some accommodations, 
MPs handed over almost 200 highly detailed and involved questions and gave Victor just one week to answer them. Many of the questions fell entirely outside his knowledge and responsibilities as CFO. He was asked, for instance, to provide data showing that 79% of young people involved with the charity voted in the 2011 Canadian election. Even legitimate questions sought a volume of material impossible to compile in a week's time. Victor was asked to provide a list of all schools the charity had built, along with the country addresses, location, and what donor funds went into its construction. There were literally tens of thousands of donors who had supported programs around the world over the 25 years the charity had been in existence. Committee members even demanded that Victor provide information on the personal finances and holdings of we staff members, not only the Kilbergers. Scott Baker had endured his own interrogation before FINA, but that was nothing compared to what he saw with his longtime colleague and friend. When Victor said he needed help answering some of the questions, I expected that he was looking for access to files he didn't have at home. He had been off for months by this point, Scott recalled. When I saw the questions, it was so overwhelming the sheer volume. There was nothing logical or fair about them. I can only imagine the stress this caused Victor. On March 15th, just a few days after the initial deadline, Victor delivered his answers to 100 questions while continuing to work on the rest. But this was deemed unsatisfactory. At the March 22nd meeting, Angus ran it that Victor had undermined the trust of the committee by not responding to the entire list within the given time frame. That evening, Canada Land posted Victor's written answers to the committee, including the cover letter from his lawyer, and reported that he risked a contempt charge if he didn't respond to the remaining questions within five days. Canada Land scoop meant that a member of the government committee charged with addressing privacy issues had decided to violate Victor's privacy by leaking confidential correspondence to the media. I can't tell you for certain which MP was responsible, but Charlie Angus was the only one quoted in the Canada Land article, and a post-it list of 13 questions that Victor allegedly failed to answer was identical to a list Angus read out in the committee meeting. In 2018, Angus had also been sanctioned by the Ethics Commissioner for violating confidentiality requirements in connection with calls for other parliamentarians to be investigated. With our client facing a barrage of false statements by MPs and resulting negative media coverage, Megan Savard felt she had no choice but to disclose Victor's medical condition to the public. According to his doctor, she wrote in a letter, 
she sent to the committee and also posted to social media. A return to full-time work or other exposure to stress could cause a rupture of the brain aneurysm, permanent disability, or death. Committee members had known about the aneurysm for more than a month, but they could no longer pretend that wasn't the case. The feigned outrage had to end before ordinary Canadians became offended at the treatment of an ill man. At their next meeting, Angus said he was hopeful for Victor's health and not interested in creating undue stress. But he also said he was surprised by Savard's letter, despite her four earlier communications about Victor's medical condition, and suggested he still could not take Victor and his lawyer at their word. Mark was, and still is appalled, by the committee's behavior toward his friend and colleague. Out of everything from the past year, it stands out as one of the most despicable moments I could have imagined from people in a position of power. I could only interview Victor briefly, 15 minutes, and only in the morning was all the energy he could muster. The effect of all this on both his health and his belief in Canada was distressing to see. One of the reasons I gave up Chinese citizenship is because of my faith in democracy, he told me. But now, he told me, he felt betrayed. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't sleep because this seemed like a nightmare. I thought it was not real. It was not the Canada I came to know. My trust and dreams have been broken. Although the year-long affair had already been marked by plenty of low points, the treatment of both Perlmutter and Lee underscored for me just how low some politicians were willing to go. ETHI committee members damaged a small business, subjected innocent people to threats and abuse, and compromised the health of a well-meaning WE employee who had absolutely nothing to offer on the topic of whether the liberal government had violated ethics laws, all to create the impression that there were unanswered questions, although there were none. Elected representatives have more influence and bigger platforms than ordinary citizens, and in my view, they also have a corresponding obligation to think about the impact of their words and actions on private citizens. Making a game of scoring political points at all costs, as happened here, debases us all. Calling the Cops Although Mark and Craig had already testified before the FINA committee for four hours, a nearly unprecedented amount of time, it came as no surprise that certain members of the ETHI committee wanted to haul them in again. If it was possible to keep a whiff of controversy alive, opposition politicians were going to go for it. Craig and Mark, in equal parts, exhausted and exasperated, agreed to voluntarily appear and were booked for March 8th. Just a few days before their appearance, however, Charlie Angus dropped a bomb by essentially calling the cops on we. He sent letters of referral on his parliamentary letterhead to the RCMP, 
and the CRA, demanding investigations into the charity's operations, and publicly announced that he had done so. This was a significant escalation. At this point, politicians had insisted that We Charity and the Killburgers be investigated by two parliamentary committees, four federal commissioners, the ethics commissioner, privacy commissioner, lobbying commissioner, and languages commissioner, and now criminal and tax authorities. As a board member, I felt confident that neither the organization nor the brothers had engaged in any criminal activity, but things seemed to be spiraling out of control, and the organization's exposure seemed to be increasing. After consulting with counsel, the board and We Charity Management decided that the Kilbergers should no longer testify, at least not without the organization's lawyer being present. The brothers might take a reputational hit for backing out and expressed a lot of anxiety over doing so. But it did make sense to appear before the ETHI committee under these circumstances. If politicians like Angus wanted the RCMP to ask questions, then he could not have the privilege of asking the very same questions himself in a parliamentary forum. Appearing on CBC's political talk show, Power and Politics, Guy Giarno, former chief of staff to Stephen Harper and a lawyer for WE, concurred with this view. If you got an allegation about you, which is with the police, you talk to the police about it, he said. If you've got a matter or allegation about you with Canada Revenue Agency, you talk to Canada Revenue Agency. No Canadian is expected to talk to the police and also answer questions to your conservative, liberal, new Democratic member of parliament about the same things the police are already investigating. That's just not how we do things in Canada. Predictably, this resistance brought the opposition members to a full boil. Charlie Angus declared that he was very, very perplexed by the Kilberger stance and said he wanted to confer with his committee colleagues to decide how to respond. Michael Barrett wasn't willing to wait. He tweeted that the brothers would be issued a summons to appear in the interest of accountability to Canadians. The next day, Pierre Polyev tweeted a threat to have them both arrested. I've got news for the Kilbergers. You will testify, he wrote. If not, Parliament can have the sergeant-at-arms pay you a visit, and you don't want that. The fact that Polyev didn't even sit on the ETHI committee didn't seem to matter to him. Even though they have never been issued a summons, they had voluntarily agreed to testify when initially asked. Craig and Mark were soon staring at newspaper articles that amazingly implied their arrest was imminent. The National Post devoted many column inches to enumerating all the things that could happen to them if they stonewalled. At this point, the committees could issue a summons compelling the Kilbergers to attend, the paper reported, if they continue to refuse. 
according to the House of Commons procedure and practice. The committee can report it to the House of Commons, and they will be called to the bar. A literal brass bar across the House of Commons to explain themselves. The House has the power, similar to a court, to compel someone's presence. Post columnist Rex Murphy, meanwhile, fulminated about the brothers' refusal to appear. These two wannabe Gandhis, he wrote, are laying down conditions for Canada's Parliament. Two glib salesmen of Western do gooderism are telling Parliament what it may or may not expect from them. And of course, the Toronto Sun's Brian Lilly also weighed in. They built their charity, their wealth, and their business by courting the spotlight, celebrity and company of politicians, he said. Now Craig and Mark Hilberger are shying away from taking center stage. We had to ensure that our eldest daughter did not see the newspapers or any form of news over those two weeks, Mark told me, looking back months later. I always thought that the hardest conversation with my daughter would be about dating or career choices. I never imagined having to explain why members of parliament were threatening to arrest her father. Craig was listening to talk radio in his car when he heard Polyev suggest the sergeant-at-arms might turn up at their door, and he had to pull to the side of the road and compose himself. It was reminiscent of the Hillary chants in the U.S. Lock her up, lock her up, he noted. But they were talking about me and my brother. It was surreal. It was almost exactly a year after Rachel Warnick had called on the charity to help. And for Scott, it felt like a nightmare he couldn't wake up from. There we were, one of Canada's top charities, being called on by the government to help deliver one of the most important pandemic support programs, he said. Less than a year later, we've lost everything. Our organization is closing, the media is tearing us apart, and politicians are threatening to arrest our founders for crimes they didn't commit. Come on, guys. The brinkmanship carried on for weeks until finally the ETHI members agreed that We Charity's lawyer, Will McDowell, could be there alongside the Kilbergers so long as he didn't speak so much as a word to the committee. Craig and Mark appeared on March 15th. By this point, the media had reached such a frenzied pitch that the hearing was broadcast live on CBC News Network. Most committee meetings are lucky to be picked up by CPAC. When they testified before the FINA committee the previous July, Craig and Mark had opted not to push back on or be baited by hostile and provocative attacks, trying instead for a conciliatory approach. But this appearance would be different. After enduring months of sustained abuse and the collapse of the charity to which they had dedicated their lives, the Kilbergers had had enough. 
From Mark's opening statement, they made it clear that they weren't going to continue turning the other cheek. This forum doesn't give We Charity, or us, the legal protections guaranteed to Canadians, Mark said. Politicians are not impartial. Without recognizing our right to present our own evidence, this committee is trying We Charity in the courts of public opinion and forcing testimony. He also called out the lies and misinformation that had been spread, even by MPs, logged into the video conference at that very moment and pointing out that because of parliamentary privilege, Canadians were powerless to hold unscrupulous politicians accountable. If today is anything like our committee appearance nine months ago, you will make your speeches, denounce us, ask your questions, answer them yourself, and then ignore our answers, he concluded, accurately predicting the mudsliding that was to follow. For the next three hours, Canadians were treated to a rehash of the FINA committee testimony with barely a new detail added. It was a political circus, and once again, Pierre Polyev, who had inserted himself into the proceedings of a committee he did not even sit on, was the ringmaster. He demanded that Craig and Mark total up the fees and expenses paid to members of the Trudeau family. The figures had been made public almost a year before, but Polyev insisted for the sake of theater that the brothers calculate the sums live. You're going to get this number on the record, he barked, and you're going to testify it into the record, under oath, because I want the total. Since those numbers were already a matter of public record, I can only assume he wanted them to repeat them on camera as a soundbite for later use in conservative political attack ads. Throughout the session, Angus and Polyev consistently peppered their remarks with snide and disrespectful asides. Come on, guys. And nobody is buying this, said Angus. Polyev persistently called Craig my friend as though Craig was his opponent in an academic debate rather than a citizen whose integrity was being challenged on national television. At one point, Polyev even bluntly accused Craig of perjury. You're in a lot of trouble here, my friend, he said. You're under oath. Perjury is a crime. This clip was replayed constantly in the media, especially by Canada Land. Of course, leaving aside that in Canada, the term perjury applies to criminal cases and not to contempt before a parliamentary committee. The Kilbergers had not lied about anything. Mark later told me that he was thinking about his time as a page in the House of Commons about his idealistic belief that democracy was happening in that place and he was helping it. But that March afternoon's theatrics quashed any idealism that remained. The verbal shoving and shouting over each other, the lying, the sensationalist posturing for the sake of a video clip to play on their Twitter account 
or a soundbite for the evening news. It was like nothing I ever witnessed as a page, even in the worst moments of question period. Craig said it took every ounce of control he could muster not to shout at these people whose actions had destroyed his and Mark's life's work, taken opportunities away from countless young people in Canada and around the world, and ruined the livelihoods of so many. And here these MPs were, still at it for nothing more than political gain, he told me. From my perspective, there was not even the slightest pretense of trying to get to the truth. Even the National Post's Matt Gurney, no friend to we, said as much in his column the next day. It's important to note that in a way, brothers Craig and Mark Hilberger are right to claim that their organizations have been brought low by politics. He wrote, while noting how little of this latest session had to do with Trudeau and the Liberals. If you've closely followed the whole sad saga to date, you didn't learn much on Monday. And if you came into it knowing nothing, you wouldn't have come out of it knowing much more than you started with. But as usual, other journalists were less dispassionate. Globe and Mail columnist Conrad Yakubuski, for example, published an opinion piece titled The Kilbergers Need to Grow Up, in which he referred to them as petulant, spoiled children and said the self-pity they oozed on Monday smacked of immaturity. And on a media panel on CTV's Power Play, Robert Fife, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief, called the Kilbergers slimy grifters. Some months later, in what amounted to a huge breach of journalistic ethics, Fife laughingly admitted in an interview that there were lots of times when I think I probably was unfair or I torqued the story too much. It was a moment captured by journalist Amy McPherson and posted to her Twitter page. And good thing, too, because Fife's confession was later cut from the rebroadcast of the show. The verdict comes in. On May 12th, two months after the Kilbergers' turn at the ETHI committee, and more than a year since We Charity took on the CSSG, Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion issued the long-awaited report on his investigation into the government's handling of the program. It was a vindication, although one that arrived far too late to save We Charity. Unlike the highly partisan MPs on the ETHI committee, the Ethics Commissioner is a nonpartisan and independent officer of Parliament. So Dion's findings stood in stark contrast to the past year of politically charged accusations and posturing. His report was unbiased, factual, and clear. On the CSSG itself, he concluded that the creation and eventual ratifications of the CSSG was not done improperly. The commissioner cleared Trudeau of wrongdoings and found that the evidence showed 
he was not involved in the recommendation to appoint We Charity as administrator of the CSSG. Dion stated unequivocally that the Prime Minister did not give preferential treatment to We. As for former Finance Minister Bill Marneau, Dion found that he did have a conflict of interest and should have recused himself from the Cabinet decision to appoint We. This was because Murno and Craig Kilberger could, in Dion's interpretation of the relevant statute, reasonably be thought of as friends. But even here, Dion made clear that nothing untoward came of this conflict. I found no evidence, he wrote, that Mr. Murno was directly involved in the development of the CSSG's delivery model, including Employment and Social Development Canada's decision to propose we as its administrator. In short, Dion confirmed what the organization had been shouting into the wind for so long. The government needed a third party to oversee and manage the CSSG. Nonpartisan bureaucrats at ESDC had recommended we for that role. Departures from normal practices were reasonable because of how quickly the CSSG program needed to be rolled out, and the Prime Minister and Finance Minister had not tipped the scales in favor of the organization. For Mark and Craig, the reports brought both relief and anger. I wanted to lean out a window and scream. You mocked us, called us liars, bullied and harassed our staff, and tore apart our charity built over 25 years, Mark recalled. But there it was, in black and white, from the mouth of an impartial and unimpeachable parliamentary officer. To be honest, I still can't entirely wrap my head around it, Craig told me. They demolished decades of work by thousands of staff and countless others hurt so many innocent people, wasted who knows how much taxpayer money on how many redundant overlapping inquiries. For what? For nothing. For political gamemanship. After Dion released his report, letters of support began to pour into the charity, with many people asking if there was any chance that We School's programming would one day resume one school board superintendent in Manitoba even wrote to Dana Rudy, the province's deputy minister of education, forwarding Dion's report and noting the positive impact of WE programs on students. He mentioned as examples an indigenous leadership, an earth stewardship retreat, and WE's collaboration with numerous school divisions in developing a groundbreaking mental health well-being, and well-becoming curriculum initiative. The ship had sailed with We Charity's closure in Canada, but this educator wanted to make his voice heard. It will be challenging to fill in these gaps in a post-COVID world without the partnership of organizations like We, he said. I'm sharing this report below in an effort to help set the record straight. Maybe we were naive, said Scott Baker, but when the commissioner delivered his report, 
and the letters of support started to roll in, we really thought this might be it, our moment of vindication. Finally, the politicians and the media might step back and take a sober look at everything that had happened, admit there had never been a We Charity scandal, and apologize for the false allegations and for letting this get so far off the rails. But there would be no apologies and no reflections. The same opposition politicians who had once praised the ethics commissioner for his work were less complimentary now that he hadn't said what they wanted to hear. In a video response, for example, Charlie Angus cherry-picked passages and quoted them out of context, then continued to push allegations of an improper relationship between the charity and government officials. Many news outlets gave his partisan position equal coverage to Dion's nonpartisan report. The Canadian press even reposted his video, almost unedited, with the headline, Angus cries foul over findings in We Charity Report. The Globe and Mail also reposted the video, then reported on Dion's findings with a headline that seemed to take pains to avoid saying the Prime Minister had been cleared. Trudeau, in apparent conflict on We, but not formal ethics breach, Commissioner finds. At this point, Journalists were tired of the story they'd kept alive for so long, and Dion's assessment attracted far less coverage than other events throughout the CSSG affair. The news story that had started with a bang went out with a whimper, and Canadians were left with only muddy water. Indeed, it is telling that more than six months later, many people I speak to, even supporters of WE, still believe the ethics commissioner found serious lapses because of how the press reported on the findings. I think what stunned me was how quickly the story of our vindication was buried, Delisle told me. After a year of accusations, the news that they were false was barely a blip. It was a one-day story, and in many outlets, it didn't even make the front page. The media who had made sure that everyone would think us guilty also made sure that no one heard we were innocent. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.